Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Runnymede Radio. My name is Brian Bird. I'm a communications associate for the Runnymede Society. Today, we hear from Asher Honickman, a partner at Matthews Abogado LLP in Toronto. He's also the founder and CEO of Advocates for the Rule of Law, a legal think tank dedicated to promoting the rule of law in Canada. In this episode, Asher speaks with Mark Mancini about Canadian federalism, using two high-profile lawsuits, one concerning pipelines, the other concerning the federal carbon tax, as a basis for this conversation. We hope you enjoy this episode of Runnymede Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, well, welcome today uh, to our episode of Runnymede Radio. My name is Mark Mancini. I'm the National Director of the Runnymede Society. And today we have with us uh, a very special guest, Asher Honickman, uh, to talk about uh, Canadian federalism and uh, the role of federalism in two recent cases uh, that uh, have either made their way to the, made its way to the Supreme Court or will make its way to the Supreme Court. Those cases are the EMA reference, uh, which the court dismissed from the bench uh, a few we- a week or so ago, and the car, of course, the carbon tax reference. So, welcome, Asher. We're really happy to have you here today. Well, thanks, Mark. It's uh, it's great to be here, and uh, I'm in, I'm enjoying these Running Mead Radio podcasts you're doing. So it's it's great to be on this one. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, we've had a we've had a good run of special guests, uh, and now you're one of them. So that's great. So let's let's jump right in. Uh, federalism is back in the news now with these two cases, the EMA reference and the carbon tax, and people are talking about the different aspects of these decisions. But I kind of wanted to start at a very high level of abstraction with your article on the topic of Canadian federalism. Uh, it's called Watertight Compartments. And so I wanted you to give the audience here today a bit of a crazy of the thesis of that article and your view of Canadian federalism before we jump further into the cases. Sure. Well, uh, the thesis of the article is actually fairly simple. What it is basically saying is that we need to start looking at what the Constitution actually says uh, when we're when we're doing a division of powers analysis, and, and that is uh, what powers the federal or parliament has and what powers the provincial legislatures have. And uh, the problem that I, I identify in the article is that there's been this increasing trend towards what is called either cooperative federalism or flexible federalism. And that's the idea that the court should stay out of the way and let both parliament and the provinces legislate as much as possible um, to facilitate overlap. Uh, and indeed, they use words like facilitating overlap and uh, interplay. Um, And what the Constitution says is actually something very different from that. Um, The word exclusive or some variation of the word exclusive is used many times throughout sections 91, uh, 92 of the Constitution and and in some of the uh, 93, 4 and 5 as well. And what the use of the word exclusive does is it shows that, well, it, it, it does what it says. It means that the powers that Parliament has are exclusive to it. The powers that the provincial legislatures have are exclusive to them, meaning that only parliament can legislate on certain topics and only the provinces can legislate on other topics. And cooperative federalism has really gotten away from that. And we see an increasing trend towards um, both parliament and the provinces legislating in respect of certain topics. And that's really not how our system is supposed to function and not how it did function for um 
the first century and more after Confederation. Interesting. So when the Supreme Court talks about flexible federalism or cooperative federalism, the impression I get is that it's often doing so for pragmatic reasons, meaning it's often you know, saying modern problems require modern solutions and we can't have a balkanized division of powers that prevents regulatory schemes from operating interjurisdictionally. So what do you make of that argument? Is that a convincing argument or is it something that is sort of subordinated to the words of the Constitution themselves? Well, look, it's a good argument to the extent that you think the government should be allowed to do whatever it wants to achieve whatever policy aims it wants. Um, That is not, however, the ideology that defines this country, certainly not when we think of uh, individual rights, for example. Um, There have been a lot of policies over the years that were not uh, enacted, you know, with with some evil intent to suppress this or that minority group, but that were nevertheless found to offend the charter. And the courts in that context are very... um, they don't have any qualms about describing themselves as the guardians of the Constitution, and they have no qualms about striking down legislation that that offends the Constitution. And that has been um, the way of things since Confederation, that that we have a Constitution that limits government power. It used to limit government power less so than it does does currently and that it has since 1982, but we've always had a system of constitutional supremacy, and if you want to have a system like that, and I think there's there's a lot of good reasons why you do, why that should be the governing uh, philosophy of this country, then you have to follow what the Constitution says. And when the Constitution says that Parliament can't do X or the provinces can't do Y, you have to uh, go along with that. Now, uh, that can mean that in certain circumstances, regulatory objectives can't be achieved with the same degree of efficiency. But what we've seen in practice is that our constitution is very flexible when it is followed. So you don't need the court um, expanding jurisdiction in order to let the constitution function. We'll talk about uh, the carbon tax case in a bit, but that's a, a classic example where the uh, where, where parliament could very easily uh, achieve the same policy goals that it wants to achieve. It would just have to do so in a different way. It would have to craft a law that uh, that looks different or justify that law in a different way than it has been justified in that law. So, so what a uh, I'll call it a watertight compartment. Uh, sorry, watertight compartments view of federalism says is not that um, Parliament or the provinces can't uh, regulate the economy or can't put forward uh, policy objectives. It says that if they're going to do so, they have to do so in specific ways. Hmm. So. I think one objection that someone might offer to your position is that it sounds uh, it sounds an awful lot like originalism. And apparently the claim goes originalism is a dirty word in Canadian constitutional law and shouldn't be the way that we interpret our constitution. What do you say to the critics who might advance that position to you? Well, First of all, I, I don't think that simply describing something as originalist is a criticism. If you want to make a larger criticism uh, about originalism, that's fine. And there, there's many arguments to be made there. Um, I happen to think that it is, generally speaking, the correct method of interpretation because it best captures um, 
what the true meaning of the law is and what it what it meant at the time. That's the law that governs us. Um, you know, uh, Justice Stratus and I had a, a fairly lengthy discussion and, and we touched on these themes and why it is so important to look at text and why text is really the only thing that can mm-hmm. that can uh, be used to discern the law's meaning in in a, a true uh, democratic society. And and I think all of those arguments apply in the constitutional realm. But we don't really need to take the originalist um, route here. We don't need to go that far. We really just need to say it's a it's a textual mm-hmm. issue. Um, because the word exclusive, this isn't like an issue where we want to say, well, the you know, words have changed meanings. The word exclusive means in 2020 what it meant in 1867. Uh, you can read the Constitution today. You don't need historians, for the most part, to understand what is being done in our division of powers. Um, the, you know, I, I, certain uh, terms of art may be different than they were in 1867. You know, we probably wouldn't say property and civil rights today. And so I, I suppose you need um, more of an originalist uh, investigation there. But words like exclusive and just the whole structure of 91 and 92 that's very easy to discern just from reading the words on their face. And so really the issue is not, uh, do we take an originalist view to this, but more broadly, do we take a textualist view? Do we look at what the constitution is that we actually have, or do we do we invoke the constitution that we wish we had? Yeah. Uh, we could have had a constitution of overlapping powers. We don't. Um, and, and so if we care about what the constitution says, and I think we should, and, that really is where the courts derive their entire power to do judicial review from the words of the Constitution. So if the courts are going to uh, have any legitimacy in determining what laws are constitutional and which aren't, they have to look at the wording of the Constitution. So your approach that uh, to look to the words of the Constitution and, and, the, and particularly the exclusivity of the powers laid out therein, how far would you t- would your view take us back from where we are now in terms of precedent? So do we go back to uh, a, a, a Justice Betts kind of approach in Bell 1988? Do we go uh, – so how far would we go back in terms of precedent to get to where you would like to go? Well, it's an interesting question. So in, in a lot of ways, you don't have to go that far back. Um so, for example, like in the charter realm, I, I, I'm a proponent that Section 7's original meaning is a, is a procedural right, uh, not a substantive right. But there has just been way too much written since 1985 about how, is, how it is a substantive right. There's been doctrine developed and developed there. It would be totally impracticable to go back and, and erase that and say, okay, Section 7 is only going to mean um, – you know, a, a procedural right to to a fair trial now. That's totally impracticable. I would say in the federalism context, we don't really have that because even though we have a Supreme Court that has been trending towards more cooperative federalism, it changes decision by decision. So uh, you get certain decisions uh, like the EMA reference, which is a very sort of, I mean, it, it came down from the bench, but the implication of it is that it's a very uh, classical analysis where they're saying this is exclusive uh, federal jurisdiction. You, you have a lot of decisions like that. And, and the problem, and I talk about this in the paper, is, is less of uh, cooperative federalism and more that we have conflicting doctrines of federalism, that we have 
um, old sort of old classical federalist decisions that are existing alongside cooperative federalism. And on occasion, the court will will uh, you know talk about old decisions and affirm them and say they're still good law. And on other occasions, the court will talk about how we need to leave all that behind. So it, it's actually really the court's doctrine that's more in a state of flux. And so returning to um, the watertight compartments would not really be erasing much precedent. It would more it would be more about clarifying uh, the existing doctrine, I think. So you're so the point is sort of that the 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 Supreme Court has to put it lightly, I guess, mucked up the existing doctrine by applying these sort of different conceptions of federalism. And so now we're at a point where there are conflicting lines of authority. And, and what we really need is the court to step in and take a more forthright approach. Yes. Like, for example, um, there's been some criticism of, of B.C. and of interveners on B.C.'s side for for uh, the positions they were advancing in this in this uh, recent recent decision on the Trans Mountain Pipeline, basically saying, oh, you know, how could you think this was ever going to win, etc.? There's a very good argument to be made that, based on past court precedent, you know, maybe it wasn't it wasn't a great case, but nor was it a long shot. And, and this is the problem that litigants are going to court. And if if, it, if the court stood up tomorrow and said, uh, you know, we're just going to have overlapping jurisdiction, and, and every both orders can do whatever they want. Well, I wouldn't like that. It would be totally contrary to the text, but at least we would have a stable, coherent doctrine. We would know what, what each order could do, and we wouldn't have to spend you know, thousands and millions of dollars on litigation. So we sort of have the worst of all possible worlds here, where mm. we have that cooperative federalism that is contra-textual, but we also have flux in the doctrine where we don't know when it's even going to be applied. And I mean, this is a problem we've had in lots of other areas of law. Administrative law is one area. Uh, constitutional interpretation generally is... Uh, another area, I mean, uh, Ben Oliphant has, has called Canada's approach Bobbitt's paradise, right. uh, referring to the constitutional uh, scholar Bobbitt, who uh, sort of lays out different ways of constitutional interpretation. So this isn't a new problem per se, but it's one that I think has had um, a lot to say, a lot, a, lot, a lot of play, I think, in these recent cases that I'll turn to now. So the EMA reference, which you alluded to, and the carbon tax. So let's let's start with the EMA reference. Was it surprising uh, to you that the court dismissed the appeal from the bench? I suppose that aspect of it may have been surprising just because I, I would have thought we would get um, some reasons and and that there you know you never know when there's going to be a dissent, etc. And and it's not that typical for a court to um, to rule from the bench, especially on a on what you would call a major federalism case, uh, so that aspect of it surprised me a little bit. But the result being unanimous was uh, was not surprising. This did seem like a very straightforward case to me, where this is uh, exclusive federal jurisdiction, even when we take into consideration uh, the trend toward cooperative federalism. It has never gone this far, and like I was saying a moment ago, it. It's not uh, it's not a huge leap to suggest that it ought to go that far once we're already going down that road. But that this would have been uh, this would have been another sort of giant step in that direction. And uh, I think we're all better off that the court didn't take it because this at least is now very clear that uh, Parliament 
has the exclusive authority to, to regulate uh, interprovincial pipelines. And the notion that a province can frustrate that uh, by passing a law that's, you know, ostensibly for something in the province, uh, the, the notion that that could be constitutional just strikes me as, as hugely implausible. And I'm glad the court recognized that. Hmm. Is this an example? So, I mean, for those unfamiliar, this case was about the Trans Mountain Expansion Project. Uh, British Columbia passed environmental regulations designed to regulate uh, crude oil in, within the, the confines of the province. But this would obviously was obviously aimed, I think, in the courts, implicitly in the court's mind, towards regulating an interprovincial undertaking, which would be impermissible. So on that line of thinking, Asher, was was this an example of the sort of exclusivity approach that you advocate? Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, if you, if you were going to play devil's advocate here and take take a, a, a flexible federalism approach, you would say, look, um, the provinces have a right to regulate uh, substances that are within the province. We're not saying that they can they can uh, keep. Uh, oil from from uh, you know moving between provinces per se, but when it's in their province, they can regulate it, and Parliament can always pass a law that um, you know that supersedes that, and we can just deal with this at the paramountcy stage. Um, so it, it should just be a paramountcy issue, but but let the provinces regulate uh, you know any substance that is within their territory. So it's it's not completely. Uh, inconceivable that a court could have gone that way, uh, but but on the other hand, if you take the exclusivist approach, you say, well, if, if the purpose of the law or or its sort of immediate legal effect is to effectively regulate an interprovincial pipeline or any interprovincial undertaking, which this was, which it clearly was on its face, then you can't do that under the color of legislating for something within the province. Mm. So that so and so I think it is a good example then of the exclusivity approach. Do you think the case will have uh, a lot of precedential value in that respect, or do you think it's sort of limited to the particular facts here, where British Columbia, I think, very bravely tried to do something that is probably clearly prohibited by the division of powers? Well, I mean, I, I think what what is strong about the decision. Um, both from the Court of Appeal and, and the Supreme Court dismissing it 9 nothing, is that I think BC will, will probably be hesitant toward enacting any other kind of law now that would, that would sort of, um, you know, in, in a very sort of clever way, get around what, what a court may have said. So if, if, if a decision had been sort of narrowly confined to just these very specific facts on this very specific law, we may see an emboldened BC trying to enact a different kind of law, and they still might. But to me, what's what's strong about the decision is that it sends a very clear message that the very nature of this activity is interprovincial. So don't you dare try to regulate it. Mm. Now, whether that sets a precedent for other kinds of interprovincial regulation, I don't know, and I'd be skeptical. Um, you know, maybe I see things. Uh, to black and white, but this case doesn't look fundamentally that different from the Como case to me, which I know is about something very different. But on its face, I, I always saw Como, which was about Section 121 and and the free you know free trade. But I I also saw that as a division of powers case. Right. I, I didn't think it would be as clear as this one, but I thought there's a good argument that really what the province of New Brunswick was doing was it was controlling 
interprovincial uh, interprovincial trade of alcohol. Right. And and it was doing it again under the auspices of oh no we're just looked at we're looking at possession in the province, but all of the policing, all of the enforcement of that law had to do with the interprovincial uh, importation aspect of it. So it, it's, to me, it's, a, it's not that different in analysis. Um, and in Como, the court didn't even really go there because that issue wasn't really before them. But uh, the, I, I believe that one of the Maritime Provinces Court of Appeals had ruled, it, may, it might've been New Brunswick, in fact, had ruled definitively that that kind of law is intravire that that uh, even if a law is stopping importation, if 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 the law on its face says that it's concerned with possession in the province, then it's possession in the province. But um, you know the logic of, of this decision would say that just because you call something uh, intraprovincial yes. doesn't mean that it is intraprovincial. Right. You have to look at actually what the law is doing, what animated the law, and and really what the law typically does affect, not just what it says it affects. Right. And I, I shared your view on that. As you know, I think Como and uh, Como could have been decided just on a pith and substance basis. But uh, that that's sort of certainly another topic for another day. Um, let's move now into uh, having sort of dealt with the EMA side of things. Let's move into the carbon tax, which I think has a few more moving parts to it uh, than the EMA reference. So the, 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 the sort of the Greenhouse Gas Pricing Pollution Act has been judicially examined in a few provinces now it's going up to the supreme court what are the sort of can you lay out sort of the arguments for for the for the constitutionality of the law what is the federal government trying to advance here to defend the law's constitutionality well the federal government is relying on what we call pog um which is which is not like a you know a, a toy that teenagers <laughs> play with it's a different kind of pog um, maybe just as as elusive, um, <laughs> but um, basically POG stands for Peace, Order, and Good Government. And where that comes from is the preamble to Section 91 of the Constitution. The preamble to Section 91 of the Constitution, uh, Constitution Act 1867, the, the former BNA Act, says that Parliament can make any law uh, for the peace, order, and good government except... Uh, un, except for subjects that have been assigned exclusively to the provinces, and then it lists out federal powers, which are which are sort of illustrations of what peace, order, and good government are, but but not uh, exhaustively what peace, order, and good government are. So when we talk about the POG power, really all federal power is POG, based on the words of the Constitution. Everything the federal government does is peace, order, and good government. But when we talk about the POG power. What we're really talking about is the residual. What powers? What power does the federal government have that is not enumerated in Section 91? And of course, there's lots of things. Um, first of all, there are things that didn't exist at the time the Constitution was written, such as um, aeronautics. Uh, so that that falls under POG. And then the the second branch. Well, sorry. There's there's two main branches. One one is called national concern. So that's things like uh, things that weren't invented at the time, or things that have become national over time. And then there's the emergency branch of POG. And the emergency branch of POG basically says that there are things that even though they're in provincial jurisdiction, that when an emergency arises, by the nature of the emergency, Parliament assumes jurisdiction over it. Okay. And so uh, uh, it, 
in the carbon tax case, the government advanced an argument under what we would call the national concern branch of POG. They weren't saying this was an emergency, though there's lots in their submissions that uh, support that theory. What they were saying was that the regulation of greenhouse gases have become uh, or has, has become, in effect, a national concern. And it's, it's an interesting, subtle point because all the same arguments that you would make for an emergency, they made it for national concern. And so they talked a lot about how uh, climate change has, has affected the planet, how it will affect the planet, how it's affecting Canada in particular. And therefore, uh, it has essentially become a national issue such that if, if some provinces don't cooperate, then the entire uh, national approach can be, can be undermined. And the problem for this approach is that when you find something as a national concern, you're finding it's a national concern for all time. And by definition, under the Constitution, you're finding that it is no longer a provincial concern. And that, mm. that's an important distinction. When you find something is an emergency, what you find is that temporarily, that, that this remains provincial jurisdiction, but temporarily the federal government needs to take take over and fix the emergency, as it were. Mm. But the implication of national concern is that this is now federal for all time. It is be right. because it because of its uh, singleness, um, sorry, si singleness, uh, distinctiveness, and indivisibility. Th those are the three uh, the three bases to find that something has become. National. So you basically have to look at the problem and say, this is no longer something that varies province by province. It is something that has transformed nationally and therefore only only parliament uh, can regulate it. And, and so the problem is that by going there, what you're really saying is that the provinces can no longer go there anymore. Uh, and that's a problem because the provinces, uh, provincial laws already do so much to regulate carbon emissions and have been regulating carbon emissions for decades, uh, maybe even at the time of confederation. And that's a problem that the court realizes it has. And so what, what the majority of the Court of Appeal for Ontario did and the Court of Appeal for Saskatchewan, and, and I'm guessing what a Supreme Court majority will do, is they've defined the matter very narrowly in order to continue to allow the provinces to regulate greenhouse gases. Uh, because if you define the matter just to mean the regulation of greenhouse gases and you said that is now a national concern, what you're saying is that the provinces can't regulate greenhouse gases anymore. Mm. And so to get around that problem, what the court, what the majorities of these decisions have done is they've said, well, it's not really the regulation of greenhouse gases. It's about setting minimum standards for the regulation of greenhouse gases. Um, right. And... You know, and so and minimum national standards, I should say. And so what that does is it says, well, we're not intruding on provincial um, provincial authority here because really this is just about uh, national standards, a minimum national standard, which provinces never had the authority to set minimum national standards. They, they deal with provincial standards. So therefore, uh these federal laws and provincial laws can exist, uh, coexist peacefully. So, the, so we have an. You kind of outlined the national concern uh, side of the things, and and your prediction is that the court will narrowly define the matter uh, to leave room for, for for provincial legislative efforts. 
Um, can you, now, I noticed on Twitter you posted uh, a sort of uh, a status that said, uh, the crux of my position is that the feds can't have their cake and eat it too. They can regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but they have to admit it's a tax or declare an emergency. So right. does that, so it, can you explain that a little bit and especially the taxation side of this? Because that's a question that uh, also animates uh, the federal government's arguments. Right. So the federal government, the parliament has very, very broad taxing powers, um, much broader than the provinces. The province's taxing power is expressly limited in section 92 only to direct taxation. Right. The uh, and, and, and it has further language, too, that the tax has to be to you know raise revenue for a provincial purpose. The federal taxing power is is phrased much broad, much more broad, uh, much more broadly than that to say that it can be any any method of taxation. OK, and so there would be no question that a carbon tax that, you know, that's that's what people have been calling it generally, that a carbon tax would be constitutional, a federal carbon tax. If, if, if Parliament came out today and said, we are taxing carbon, there's no doubt that that is constitutional. The reason I said the uh, federal government can't have its cake and eat it too is because they want to be able to say this law is constitutional. Oh, but we are not enacting a tax. Oh, uh, yes. Okay. For political reasons, you don't want to enact a tax. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and to be fair, there's there's elements of this law uh, that may that may make it not a tax. Um, it's not clear that it is a tax. I think that could go either way. But the point is the the federal government has stood up in court and has said this is not a tax. We're not defending it on the basis that it's a tax. We don't want to call it a tax. We want to say that this is uh, POG and it's it's just national concern. Uh, and similarly, the federal government, even though the act talks about climate change as an emergency, it's hard to escape that conclusion when you read uh, the majority opinions and when you read what the federal government has said in the court. It, it's hard to escape the conclusion that what they are saying is that we're faced with an emergency. But notwithstanding that, they have not expressly said this is a national emergency or that we are defending this on the basis that it's a national emergency. Again, that, that strikes me as a political position. The federal government doesn't want to say that there's a national emergency. Um, that could be seen as alarmist, or it, it could, you know, it, it could scare the population for one reason or another. So m my point is that Parliament can regulate greenhouse gas emissions, um, principally through taxing them. That that is the number one way. It can also use the criminal law power. Um, to outlaw activities. It can create essentially new new crimes or offenses with respect to pollution. There's no doubt about any of that. Um, my point of that tweet, and you know, there's only so much you can accomplish in, in 280 characters, yes. but the, the point I'm trying to convey there is that you can't, on the one hand, say we get to regulate greenhouse gas emissions, but we also get to not call it a tax or an, or an emergency or, or a crime. Uh, in other words, if you want to regulate these things, there's a mechanism to do so, and the Constitution sets out what that is. But you have to stand by. Uh, you have to stand by the Constitution. You have to call your laws what they are. You can't say you, you can't cheat and say, "Well, this is national concern. It's about minimum national standards." Um, that logic would mean that Parliament can regulate everything that falls within. 
provincial competence and just say, well, we're not regulating it. We're just setting a minimum national standard for it. So you're you're sort of uh, saying the way that the, the government is framing this is not uh, it's not getting to the truth of what the law is trying to accomplish in the sense that it's sort of papering over it's papering over the the ways in which the law could be justified. It's not saying it's a tax. It's, the government's not saying it's an emergency. Uh, so there's sort of some confusion there, I think, about how the government is characterizing this. Yes. And if there's enough evidence that it's a tax, um, you know, like the um, Affordable Affordable Care Act decision, there's an argument that it should be saved as a tax. Um, and, and that could be one, one avenue that a court could go down where they want to you know, uh, save a law. And, th and there's an argument why courts should try to save laws as constitutional when they can, where, right. they, where they would save the law in a way that accords with the constitutional text. Um, and there's arguments going both ways on why this is or isn't a tax. But what I, what I think is disingenuous is to say that this law, if it's not a tax, that it's not simply just a regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. It's either a tax or it's regulating greenhouse gas emissions. It's not setting minimum national standards for the regulation of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it, it is doing that. That's specifically what it's doing. But more generally, it's regulating greenhouse gas emissions. Mm. And, and you, can't, you can't get away from that fact simply by trying to define it more particularly uh, in order to, to render it constitutional. Because like I said, at that point, you could you, Parliament could regulate every facet of of uh of our lives that that we are typically used to only the provinces regulating and say well this is just minimum national standards right yes so there'd be a, yeah it would be an expanding federal power yeah uh, under that under that standard so i guess sort of the last question i'll ask you is with regards to the carbon tax what is the way out of this for the court uh the arguments seem, you know, that there's a lot of ways the court could go with this, but what do you think the court will do ultimately here? Uh, I think you alluded to this earlier, but just to sort of put the point more strongly, what do you think the court will do with this, with the reference? And uh, do you think, whatever you think that they will do, do you think it will be a good outcome from the perspective of the exclusive, your exclusive division of powers? Well, it, it's interesting. I, If you look at the EPA, uh, sorry, the EMA reference. The court's decision, while being exclusivist, has a very um, facilitative result, okay, in that a major economic project can now go ahead. In other words, yes, they stopped BC from legislating, but BC's legislation was designed to hamper um, national legislation, Right. And so the, the result of that decision is facilitative, not prohibitive. Right. Whereas, whereas if you struck down the federal carbon tax or, or the, 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 we'll just call it, you know, uh, Greenhouse Gas Polluting, uh, Pollution Pricing Act, um, if you strike that down, you, you are prohibiting a national program. You're not facilitating a law. And that seems to be where the court tends to go. Uh, so, Oftentimes, when they do adopt this exclusivist approach, it's when it's not at the expense of any major regulatory project, right? So I, I'm, quite, I'm quite certain that at least five and probably seven, if not nine, of the justices on the court are going to affirm the constitutionality of this, mm. of this statute because it is in line 
with what um, with what the courts have been doing in the past, which is that when there is a major piece of regulatory legislation, that if it is struck down, will stop the government from from regulating an area. In those cases, we do typically see um, this cooperative federalism approach. Now, a big a big exception to that is the um, the uh, securities reference back in, right. back in 2011. That's a big exception to that. Um, so one never knows, and this goes back to my my earlier comment about how we're we're in we're in a world of conflicting federalism doctrines. But if history, if recent history is any guide, there is a very strong possibility that the majority will affirm this law under a very similar theory uh, and doctrine to what the majority of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Uh, said, which is that it's about establishing minimum national standards to mm. reduce uh, emissions. And I can guess that on your approach to the division of powers, that that wouldn't be a positive development. Then it wouldn't. But uh, you know, I, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not overly optimistic about my. I, I don't consider it my my approach. I consider it the constitutional approach. Yes, and, right. And I, I'm not optimistic about the constitutional. Uh, what, what the constitution demands being followed in this case or in other federalism cases going forward, at least not for the foreseeable future. Mm. Um, but that's why it's so important to talk about these things. I, I think a lot of Canadians who aren't lawyers uh, and even a lot of lawyers don't understand what our constitution says. They don't know that um, because it's not something that's taught. It's not something, you know, Unfortunately, unlike the unlike the Americans in this regard, we don't talk about our constitution a lot. Uh, we should talk about it more because our Canadians need to understand that part of the great bargain of confederation was divided powers. It wasn't that provinces could legislate and the federal government could step in and 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 just you know uh, legislate alongside them and would just overrule them if there was a conflict. It was that there were going to be separate spheres. Hmm. Well, uh, I mean, that's a great note to end on because Runnymede's mission is to advance uh, legal education, not only in the law schools, but I think publicly as well. And so that's the purpose of these podcast episodes, to discuss these sorts of issues in an open and honest way and to get try to get to the heart of them. So on that note, uh, I'll end by saying that uh, next month is our national conference for the Runnymede Society, our Law and Freedom Conference. And at that conference, we're going to be discussing – the Greenhouse Gas Pricing Pollution Act with some very distinguished guests. So if you enjoyed this conversation, stay tuned for more. And on that note, I will thank you, Asher, for taking the time out of your day to speak with us today. Uh, and we'll sign off. So thank you again, Asher. Oh, thank you for having me and really looking forward to the conference this year. Great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Runnymede Radio. To learn more about the Runnymede Society, visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.